All right, well, welcome to New City, guys. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, got my license, and even till now, I have pretty much a pristine driving record. And I say pretty much, I've never been in an accident, never got a ticket. The only infraction I ever got occurred when I was 17 years old, and I got a ticket for uh, running a stop sign. And what that actually meant was not completely stopping at the stop sign. And I was pretty upset about this thing. I was like, the only reason he's giving me a ticket is because I'm 17 years old. This is what everybody does. It was like a three-way stop. There is nobody anywhere ever. And so like, you slow down, but you don't completely stop, as all of us till this day still do. Not that I'm bitter about it. And anyway, so I was really annoyed. I was like, this should not be a thing. And I remember going to the courthouse that, that the day, whatever, for the court date or whatever, my dad took me. And we were going to go and ask for a prayer for judgment so it's not on my record or you don't, your insurance doesn't go up, any sort, anything like that. So we, we go, and I still, to this day, I was like, this is so dumb. This is so annoying. This isn't fair. I remember looking at, like, the paper of, like, all the people who were there for, like, whatever, the court proceedings in the courtroom for that day, and I looked at all of the traffic violations, and there was not one other stop sign violation but me. There was, like, 300 for the day, and I was the only stop sign violation, so I was pretty upset about this, and so we go in, and growing up, like, you know, I was a kid, so, you know, you get in trouble, do, do things kids do, but I, like, me and my brothers were very respectful to authorities, to adults, like, yes, sir, no, sir. Like, we were, just, we were pretty well behaved, and I was just so upset. And so we go in, and like, we're waiting for my turn, and the judge calls me up, and he says, hey, Mr. Dotson. So I come up, and he said, um, I see you're here because you ran a stop sign. And without thinking, just out of instinct reaction, I said something that I immediately regret. So he says, you're here for, a stop sign, for running a stop sign. I said, no, sir, I just didn't completely stop. And like, it's coming out. And I'm like, I cannot believe what I'm saying in this courtroom. I'm 17 years old. Like, I ain't getting away with this. I, like, I was like, I am so dumb. As it's coming out. But I was just like so mad about the situation. And I don't know, maybe because he like respected my bravado or I don't whatever. He literally just said, okay, prayer for judgment, next. And I was like, I didn't even have to ask for it. Like, he just like gave it to me, right? And so I was like, well, that's fair because I shouldn't be here for this. And so um, anyway, as you know, I'm not, I'm still, you know, getting over it. But, but here, here's the deal. I share that story because as, as much as unfair as that seems, and even to this day, I kid you not, when I'm at stop signs and there's no one around, I still do not completely stop uh, just because. Um, even, even to this day, right, I did something wrong. I got found out. Here's the thing. That might be a small thing, but all of us in our lives have done things that are wrong, whether or not we've been found out about them, although there's certain probably times there have. The question then for us is, what should God do about that? What should God do about the things in our lives, our guilt, the things that we do wrong? And maybe for today in particular, we're looking at this question. How can the guilty avoid punishment? God is just, loving, care, kind. He cares for what we do. He cares about sin. How, how can he be a loving and just God and yet still welcome us into his presence? How can you and I, in the midst of our guilt or our shame or our sin or our brokenness or our falling short, how can we avoid, is it possible for us to avoid the punishment we deserve? Is there, I guess, for a lack of a better word, a prayer for judgment that God might give us? And if so, how can we obtain it? That's the question for us this morning. How can the guilty avoid punishment. And so um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. If not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home with you. We'll be on page 499 in those Bibles. Uh, this is the last week in our little short series in the book of Psalms. Next week, we'll be back in Genesis. And I'm really excited about that. Now, in the book of Psalms, there are various categories that different Psalms fall into. Uh, today, we are looking at what is called a penitential Psalm or a Psalm of repentance. Somebody's done something wrong, they've sinned, and they're asking God to 
to give them penitence or God to give them forgiveness. Now, the background for this psalm written by King David, uh, many of you might be familiar with the story. It comes on the heels of when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So what he did was he, instead of being off at war with the nation of Israel, he stays back, which he was not supposed to do. He sees a woman and he summons her to come to his chambers and he sleeps with her. Now, it says, you know, we talk about adultery. If we're putting modern language on it, you would also call this rape because he's the king. And what is she supposed to do? Tell the king, no, that's not how it would have worked. And so he, he essentially sleeps with this woman who is not his wife. She becomes pregnant. Uh, when he finds out she becomes pregnant, he, she, he calls back Uriah, her husband, from the battlefield and tries to get him to go spend a few nights with his wife. He won't do it because he says it's not fair that I should be back when everyone else is out fighting. And so because Uriah will not do it, he sends Uriah back on the battlefield with instructions to the commander to have Uriah killed. The next time they're at battle, have Uriah out front, everyone else pull back and let him be killed. So he sleeps with a woman who's not his wife, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. That is the background for the psalm that we are going to read today. And in fact, this psalm actually turned into a hymn by which people can confess their own sins. So here's David, does something extremely wicked and evil and wrong. And here's, here's what he writes in Psalm 51. Verse 1, he says this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. So he starts this psalm by asking God for his grace, for his favor, for his mercy, that God would deal with David as David does not deserve, right? According to God's character and his kindness and his faithful love, not according to David's character and what David has done, that God would make him unguilty, that God would wash him, that he would cleanse him from his sin. Now, again, this idea of washing and cleansing comes from this idea of washing yourself ceremonially. So in the Old Testament law, you could be ceremonially unclean. Now, there are certain sins. If you sin, you could be unclean. There are certain things you could do that weren't sinful that would also render you unclean. And so before you could go back to the temple area or the tabernacle area and offer sacrifices, you would go through a series of rituals to become clean so that you could then draw near to God's presence. And what David is saying here is that there's nothing I can do to make myself clean based off what I have done. Only God, if he is merciful and kind to me, can do it. Right? David knows that he cannot make up for his sin. Right? There's no amount of good David could do for the rest of his life that makes up for sleeping with another man's wife, getting her pregnant, and then killing her husband. Doesn't matter. He could be literally the perfect person for the rest of his life, and he cannot change what he has done. And I think one of the things that's helpful for us as we look at this psalm for us to consider that, that if you and I, if we are completely honest with ourselves, right, we have all done things in our lives where we know that there is nothing we could do to right that wrong, right? Big or small, all of us have done things in our lives that sometimes maybe out of nowhere you think of it and you're like, man, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I treated this person this way. I can't believe I did this thing. And it brings you shame and guilt whenever you think about it. And there is nothing you can do to change what you have done, regardless of how good of a person you are. This, of course, is where David has found himself. Regardless of how good of a person he is going forward, he cannot change the evil that he has committed. And so he says this in verse 3, if we keep reading. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. 
Against you and you alone, he's talking to God here, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence, you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, what David is saying here is that his sin is his own doing. He decided to do it. No one forced him to do it. It is his own doing. And therefore, God would be fully justified to not give him any grace, to not forgive him. He would be fully justified to do that and instead give David judgment instead. Now, also, one of the things that's interesting here as you're reading this, verse 4, something sticks out when he says, against God alone, I have sinned. Now, when you read that, you're like, Come on, bro. Like, you know, that's not, you sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. How can you say against God alone have I sinned? What's going on here? Well, well, what's happening here is that this is actually the same thing that David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when you read about the sin that took place. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David about his sin. And how he does this is he tells them this fictitious story about two men who were in a city. And there is one rich man, and then there is one poor man. Now, this poor man, all he had was one small lamb that he raised. He would shear it for clothing. They would use it for milk for him and his family. It's all this family had to live on. And then one day, this rich man comes into town, and instead of bringing one of his own lambs for a party to feed the guests and to feed the people he's with, he instead takes this poor man's lamb, the only one this poor man owns, and uses this poor man's lamb for his feast. And so David, Nathan, the prophet Nathan tells David the story, and David responds by saying, this man deserves to die for what he has done. This man has everything. How dare he take the only thing that this poor man owns for himself? And then in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, it'll be on the screen. This is what it says. This is what Nathan says to, to David. He says, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? In other words, what God considers evil. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonites' sword. In other words, what Nathan is saying, you are that man. This is what I'm talking about. This rich man who had everything took, you are that man. And then this is David's response in verse 13. And then David says this, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so all that to say, what this is not saying, David is not saying that he has not wronged Bathsheba or Uriah. Absolutely he has. But the emphasis here is that he has rebelled against the character of God, of how God has asked him to rule Israel, and of course how God has asked him to live himself. He has despised the commands of God, and of course adultery, rape, and murder are absolute violations of God's command and his character. And so ultimately, because of what David has done, God is the only one who can deal with it. Not that he, again, didn't sin against the other two, but if there's going to be any forgiveness, any grace, any mercy, God is the only one that's going to be able to decide if he is going to grant it to him. 
And then he says this in Psalm 51, verse 5, if we, as we read. He said that he was guilty when he was born. Now, what this is not saying is that conception in and of itself was sinful. What he is saying is that each person, even himself, can trace their sinful tendencies to the very beginning of their existence. Right? Their desires to be prideful, to be selfish, to take what they want, no matter how it might affect other people. This is innate in all of us. Right? In fact, we all know this to be true from our own experiences. Right? If you're have a child, or of course you were a child at one point, no one has to teach their children how to be selfish or mean or how to lie, right? We just do it, right? They're like, my little Johnny's an angel. Well, it's because he can't talk yet. That's why he's an angel, right? We just, we just do it, right? In fact, so if you're a parent, right, so much of parenting is trying to teach your kids to learn to choose to do the right and the kind thing because the inclination of our heart is to do whatever we want in the moment. And David is saying, this is being played. It's not an excuse for what he's done. But he's saying, my, my life, I'm, I'm marred and marked by sin. And so what Psalm 51 is saying, what David is saying about himself is also true of all of us. And that is that we are all guilty. We are all guilty. We have all fallen short. We have all gone our own way. We have all made decisions that were good for us, that did not honor God, and did not love other people. It's why in the book of Romans, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he's actually quoting from various psalms, and one of them would be Psalm 51, when he says that no one is righteous, we have all sinned. No one is perfect. No one is fully good, because we have all fallen short. Or maybe put it in a modern context, every single one of us, whether you got a ticket or not, have ran a stop sign. Right? I know you've all done it, right? I might be the only one that got a citation for it, but we've all done it. Now, now here's why I say that. Our tendency and our, our kind of modern cultural concept of like, well, how do we get to the good place when we die? Like, that's like, we want to go, to, if there's a good place that exists, exists, I want to go there. And we think it's all about trying to outweigh our bad with good. Make sure the scales are, are more good than bad so that we can go to the good place. Now, of course, the problem is, how do you know and who's the judge? And of course, you're always going to be more lenient on yourself than other ones, someone else might be to, for you. But let's just grant for a moment that you do more good than you do bad. The problem is your bad is still there. It cannot be erased as if it did not happen, right? No matter how good you are, even if you're not even sure about this Jesus thing, right? All of us have done things that we would say even our own standard of morality are wrong. All of us. So no matter how much good you do, God still has to do something with your sin, with your brokenness, with your evil, with your falling short. We are all guilty. So what do we do? That's the question. What do we do? And so David continues by saying this in verse 6. He says, again, talking to God, surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Hyssop is a branch. I'll show you a picture of it in just a second. Uh, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
In other words, what David said is that God desires integrity and honorable living among his people. This is in line as his character as creator. This is who God is, and he's inviting us to live in the way that would honor him, that would be consistent with who he is. And he talks about hyssop. Here's a, here's a picture of, of hyssop for you. These are these, these plants with like these leafy branches on the side, often used for cleaning, uh, often used for cleaning purposes. In fact, a little fun fact here, uh, the first time that hyssop is mentioned in the Bible, uh, it was in Exodus chapter 12. And after that, again, this was used in various uh, ceremonial cleansing rituals. But in Exodus chapter 12, if you remember the story, it's when Israel is about to leave Egypt. God has done these plagues. Pharaoh will not let his people go. And so it's the death of the firstborn among all the people in Egypt. And what does he ask the Israelites to do? Take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of a lamb, and wipe it on the doorpost of your door so that God's judgment might pass over over you so that you might be made clean. This is what God, David is asking God to do for him. In fact, I love, in, in verse 10, the message paraphrase uh, uh, version of the Bible says it this way, God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. And I love that, especially if you've been with us through the book of Genesis, because what happens in the Genesis week? Chaos, darkness, uh, unhabitable for humanity, and God brings order and grace and love and mercy to the chaos. This is what David is asking God to do with his soul. And he's asking God to do these things because, again, only God is the one who can do this. Only God is the one who can forgive him for the evil that he has committed. Just like David, you and I are unrighteous on our own. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so all these things David is asking for can only come from God's mercy, grace, and favor. David cannot erase what he has done. It is totally up to God whether or not God will forgive him out of grace. David can do nothing to earn it. It is completely undeservable, right? And so he needs God to blot out his record, to take the guilt away from him, to make him white as snow, or else David's going to be in trouble. But what this makes me think of was a conversation I was, I was in a few weeks ago, uh, a conversation with a mother, and, she, and her son has gone through some really significant health issues. And because of the significant health issues, he's on the road to recovery, but it's, it's affected how he has behaved, and he's got these issues he's, he's trying to work through. It's affected his behavior at school. And one of the things she was talking about was because of his behavior at school, he had to be put in separate classrooms because he can be violent. Now, when I say violent, it's not like anyone's life at danger, but he might throw something, he might want to punch something or punch a child, and so they had to place them in another room. And what she was talking about, the school is working with him and, and they're doing all these things. What they don't want to do, what the school doesn't want to do, is they don't want to put violence on his record. Right? Because again, as he continues to get better and improve, like he's not a violent kid, nobody's in danger. But even years from now, if there's violence on his record as he was recovering, it does not go away. They don't care about what happened. They don't care about the situation. All they do for the rest of school is they see violent behavior in a child. It doesn't matter if it happened five years ago because he was recovering from a traumatic injury, right? It, and so they're, they're working with him so that this does not be placed on his record because if it is, it can't come off. And for David here, this is on his record. It will always be with him unless God takes it off. In other words, put another way, here's what we see in Psalm 51 is that you and I, we cannot erase our guilt. 
we cannot take it off our record. We do not have the power to do so. And again, the problem with trying to do more good than bad in your life or trying to be a quote-unquote good person is so that we can go to the good place when we die, or that's where we want to go, is that no matter how good a person you might be, and maybe you're, maybe you're awesome. Like, listen, let me just grant, you're awesome, right? It's like you're as awesome as you actually think you are, okay? No matter how awesome you might think you are, it still does not erase your sin and your guilt. It doesn't erase it. Right? It doesn't erase it. And here's the thing. If our motivation is to do more good, again, so that we can go to the good place, instead of doing good because it's the right and honorable thing to do, then even our intentions to do good are stained. Like even our motivation to do good is wrong. And so regardless, even in our good, whatever motivates us to do good, let's say your intentions are really pure, you are still guilty. I am still guilty of the wrongs that I have committed, and that's a problem. Right? That's a problem. The problem is we cannot clean ourselves up. Only God can do it. Amen. Only God can do it. This is, this is the gospel, right? That God sent Jesus ultimately to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he actually lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserve, that he took the wrath of God on our behalf, and then he resurrected three days later to show his power over sin and death, and that whoever would follow and trust in him receive the grace and mercy of God, not because your good outweighed your bad, but because his good outweighed your sin. That's why. The gospel is what redeems us, not our effort. And David here, again, living in the time before the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah who would make it possible for us to enter into God's presence, is asking God to forgive him because he cannot erase what he's done. He cannot erase what he has done. And so he's pleading with the Lord. Verse 11, he continues by saying this, Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. In other words, what he's saying, if what's true for him, what's true for us is that we need the spirit of God. We need the spirit of God. For us today, let me just say this, following Jesus in your own power is a terrible way to live. Like, it's just awful. Like, trying to white-knuckle yourself to be a good enough person because that's what you feel like you have to do. That is an awful way to live. What we need instead and what we are given, if you are a follower of Jesus, is the Spirit of God to empower us to do the work of God in our lives. That's what we need, that we need to continually ask for the Spirit to guide us, to walk with Him so the Spirit might give us wisdom for the situations we might find ourselves in. And God, here's the good news, can even use our pain, our sin, our failures to make a difference in the lives of others. That he can actually use it for his purposes, right? And in fact, the end result of God's grace is the impact not only that it makes in the individual who receives it, but also in the lives of other people who have seen what God has done in that person's life, right? To be able to say, here is who I was, here is what I did, here is what I dealt with, but God. That we can then tell others what God has done for us as a sign that he can forgive and restore them to. 
That is what David is asking. Would you give me grace, forgiveness, and mercy? Would you forgive me? Would you restore me so that other people can see of your love, of your grace, of your mercy, of your forgiveness? And here's what I know, right? Some of us are sitting here or you're watching online and you might think, but if people have only known what I've done, the things I've said, the things I've been a part of, the substances I've abused, the people I've abused, the decisions I have made, if people only have known, and I just want to say this to you. Do you know, if that's you, if you're like, if you're struggling with the shame and the guilt of the decisions you have made in your past, do you know how much of an impact you can make in the kingdom of God if people knew what God has brought you through? If, you, if people only knew, here's what I did, here's what I was, but God... That is the type of people he uses. And this is what David is asking God to do for himself. Or put another way, here's what we see happening, is that our guilt can be used. Your guilt, your shame, your brokenness can be used for God's glory and your good. I think the most powerful thing that you have is your story of how God brought you out of darkness and into the light. How God brought you, not your intellect, not your trying really hard, not your being a better person, but here's who I was, and here is what God has done. And here's how you can do this, right? One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that if you're in Christ, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You have nothing to prove because Christ has proved it in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and you have no one to impress because if you're in Christ, God looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus. Perfect, righteous, holy, blameless, worthy of all inheritance. And if you believe that and you trust that, there's a freedom in living your life and saying, here's who I was and here's what God has done. And what we can do is that we can allow our guilt or our shame to stop that or prohibit that from happening for people to see it. So like for me, here's an example of my life. This one is a little bit of a different example, but, but it still makes sense. This is uh, something that happened to me. So it's not something I did, uh, but something that happened to me. And it was shame I felt that because of what happened, I figured, well, then God, my story must be over. Many of you know, when I was 19, my, my dad died by suicide. And listen, like, it was, a, it was a hard, it was a traumatic experience. It was completely shopping, shocking. He loved the Lord, was a great husband, great father, all these things. And I remember uh, one of the hardest things the months after that happened was just this idea of shame, right? Like, people are always going to know my story. Like, I'm always going to be the kid who lost his dad to a suicide. Like, it's always going to be with me. And it's always going to be like this damper on my life. I begin to think, the shame is who I am. I must, like, not, like, not trying to be dramatic, but this is what you think of when you're going through difficult times. Like, my life's over. Like, who cares about me? Who cares about what I'm going to do? Now, of course, what God has done is he has used this tragic situation for his good. I've had a lot of conversations just with people going through tragic times. I've had many a phone calls with people who have lost friends or spouses or sons or daughters to suicide who I didn't even know. They're like, hey, I've got a friend that's going through this. Can you, can you talk with him? And so what God has done is he's used something that was shameful for me to be good, to bring more glory to him and his kingdom and to invite more people into experiencing the grace of God. And so hear me, whether it's something you have done or something that has been done to you, God can use that for his good and your glory if you'll just be honest. Again, you have nothing to prove. You have no one to impress because God has invited you in. We don't have to hide because of the grace of God. And this is what David is pleading for. And so then he says this in verse 14, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my mouth or my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, right? The response to God's grace here is worship. 
And it's not obligatory worship or like, in our case, maybe going to church because it's the quote-unquote right thing to do, but it is a desire to do so because here's who I, what I've done, here's where I've been, and here's what God has done for me, right? It's why we worship in song. Let me just say, in our kind of Western American cultural context, it's weird to sing publicly. Like, you don't do it anywhere unless you're at a concert or your team, like, won the championship, Right? Why do we sing? Well, we sing because there's an emotion there that we can't just describe just by talking about it. Like, here is where I have been, and here is what God has done. Right? You cannot not be moved by the grace of God when you realize what you have done and what he has done to therefore redeem you. You can't be moved by that. You can't. And then he says this in verse 16. He says, you do not want to sacrifice, or I will give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. So so here's what's happening, real quick. Uh, The sacrificial system in ancient Israel played a huge role. Right? Which, of course, leads to Jesus being the final and true sacrifice for all people. So there's a lot going on there. Jesus is the final sacrifice that takes away all sin and guilt forever. Now, what David is saying here, it's not that the sacrifices didn't matter. But a performative sacrifice is what does not matter. In other words, uh, doing things or, or going through the motions so that you can look good or to look good before other people is no good before the Lord. Right? It's the heart of the one that offers the sacrifice that ultimately matters. Right? So maybe in a kind of our modern context, what this means is there's no, well, hey, listen, I'm going to make some bad decisions this week. Like I'm hanging out with the boys or the girls. We're going on this trip. Like I know I'm going to make some bad decisions. And so next week I'm going to give more money or I'll pray more or I'll read my Bible a little bit more before a time or I'll make sure I go to church for the next four Sundays, right? As if we can kind of earn or buy back our right standing before God. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm going to do to make up for it. I've done it on myself. I'm good. Nor is it, well, I'll just, I've blown it. So I'll just kind of give God some time before I go back to him because he's mad at me. Like, let me just earn his favor back again. Again, as if we can make it up for it on our own. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the good news of what David is saying here, and we see this all throughout scripture, is that God will not despise or turn away from an honest, broken, humbled spirit. No matter what you did this morning, He will not turn his back from you if you are just honest about your need for him. It's why most weeks here at New City Church, we do a time of confession after the sermon. We just quietly go before the Lord, confess our brokenness, and ask him to redeem us. Because God always, he always responds to repentance with grace. Always. In other words, here's the good news for us this morning. If you're feeling the shame and the guilt of your sin, here's what we see happening. Is that God can remove our guilt. That he actually can remove it. That this is how we become whiter than snow. This is how we become unblemished. Like, you know, white snow, we, we didn't have any snow this year, which kind of stinks. But like when it does snow a few inches, like it's always really nice. Like you're looking at your backyard until you let your, your dog go out and then it changes the color of the snow. But like it's like it's nice for a while. But then it like freezes or on the, on the road, it turns black and it's like nobody likes that. What makes us whiter than snow is that God is the one who can remove our guilt. That for us, Jesus became the guilty sacrifice so that you and I, in the midst of our sin and our shame, right now, can be seen as righteous. 
Here's the thing. God does not ignore your guilt. He is not impressed by your good works or by your balancing the scales in your favor. Uh, he will face it or he will deal with it. And the reality is either you will deal with it or he will deal with it. That you will face your sin or his grace will take it for you. The gospel is that Jesus came in our place to take the sin and the shame of the world so that anyone who would trust in their need of a savior can be made whiter than snow. Not because you're smart or did a lot of good things, but because you trusted in the one who took your shame for you. He's the one who does it. Jesus is the one who removes our guilt. And so this is how the psalm ends in verse 18. David ends by saying this, in your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Talking about the capital city of Israel. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, the psalm ends by encouraging worshipers to see the relationship between their own spiritual health and the well-being of the whole of God's people, right? That the strength of Zion or Jerusalem, like the capital city of Israel, is a symbol of the strength and the trust of God's people in God. That God will delight in the sacrifices of his people when their offerings are genuine. Not when they've done a lot of good stuff and they don't have much to sacrifice for it. That's not it. It's that when they're just honest about when they've blown it, and they, I say, God, I need you, he delights in that, that he delights in you. When repentance is real, when sin is not covered up, but it is openly confessed to God. That's what he delights in. And so again, remember, the original context for this psalm is adultery, rape, and murder. That's the context for it. And yet, David ends with talking about praise and worship and God not despising, but delighting in sinful people who repent. Not like, well, I guess I got to say you're forgiven because I sent, sent Jesus. And I, he delights. Like he actually is like excited to have you back and in a right relationship with him. Like how amazing is it, as I close, how amazing it is to think that God delights in you. Like not just in the good people, not just in the pastor or the missionary or the nonprofit leader, but you. Like he actually delights in you when you turn to him. That he has joy in giving you grace and mercy and forgiveness. That guilty, broken, sinful, selfish people God delights in. That he loves you. That you can be delighted in the one from whom you and I ultimately sin against. This is why in Romans 8 verse 1 and 2 Paul says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You've been set free. That we receive the spirit of life from Jesus. That he was the sacrifice. That he takes on the sin of those and the death of those who genuinely repent. And so, again, as I close this morning, we were looking at this question. How can the guilty avoid punishment? Because we're all guilty. Here's what we need to remember. That God's grace is greater than your guilt. That's how. His grace is greater, more powerful, more amazing than any guilt that you might have accumulated. This is not like, well, I didn't mean to, or it wasn't that big of a deal. Like it was just a stop sign. Like who cares? Like it's, it's none of that. What this is, is we are guilty. God is loving and just, and he will deal with it. Again, we've been talking about this here as we're going through Genesis. God judges because he cares. If he did not judge, he would not love. It's because he's loving and compassionate and caring that he judges sin, and that he therefore alone has the power 
power to remove it. Not you, not you balancing the scales, not you being a good person, but him. He takes it. Again, this is one of the uniquenesses of Christianity amongst all religions in the world, amongst all philosophical and ideological ideas. It's like, hey, here's what I've done. Here's what you need to do to get to heaven or nirvana or paradise or the good place. It's, it's all this like, make sure you do X, Y, and Z and so that you can make it in. The problem with all these other ideological systems is that if you are good enough, if you do the eightfold path, if you fast enough, if you pray enough, if you reach enlightenment, it's like you get to be welcome in, but nothing is dealt with your sin. Nothing is mentioned about the guilt that you have accumulated. Only in Christianity do you have a logical God who says you are guilty and you can come in, not by me pretending you didn't do it, but by me dealing with it and taking it on your behalf. That the only difference between the best person in heaven, or sorry, the worst person in heaven and the best person in hell is not how good of a person or how hard they tried. It's by trusting that Jesus did for them what they could not do for themselves. We close with this, Ephesians chapter four, verses, chapter two, verses two, verse five, it says this. But God, we're all dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. God's grace is greater than your guilt.